VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, May the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonz King is back in the producer's chair this morning. So you'll be speaking with Fonz when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever you want to talk about. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86-26. Well, of course, if you're a hockey fan, the first round of the NHL playoffs has been incredible. Out of the eight series, five went the distance. One sweep only, Colorado sweep, and then there was two series went six games, and five go all the way. And I have to say, as a Montreal fan, I still do feel bad for the Leaf fans out there. You know, tough draw to get the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions Tampa Bay in the first round. They played hard. It's not like in the years past where series that they should have won and it just got away from them. This one was pretty close series throughout. Of course, 2-1 in Game 7. But a bunch of my Leaf fan buddies here in the building and my social circle Leafs fans, they're, I guess, a combination of frustrated and disgusted. But anyway, out they go. And out west in the Western Conference, the Battle of Alberta's on. Edmonton went through, uh, Calgary went through last night in an overtime Game 7 victory, the first Battle of Alberta in the playoffs since 1991. And, of course, the Growlers, they staved off elimination the last couple of games, Game 7 tonight in Reading, Pennsylvania, to see who can advance out of that particular series. So it was encouraging to see that in and around my neighborhood and many other neighborhoods in and around the metro area, lots of neighborhood cleanups, and I'm sure the same thing could be said for different parts of the province. And they got the Outer Ring Road, portion of the Outer Ring Road, cleaned up over the weekend. You know, shut down for 12 hours yesterday to take on what is a monumental effort. And just in time for the Royals. So here comes Prince Charles and Camilla. So Charles has been, or Prince Charles, pardon me, has been to St. John's twice. He and Camilla were both here in 2009, fairly low-key visit at that time. In 1983, though, when Prince Charles and Diana, the Princess of Wales, came here, it was a pretty big, splashy event. You know, the royals seem to have fallen out of favor with a significant number of Canadians. The conversation about the requirement of the monarchy, the role the monarchy plays in this country in modern-day Canada, and it's a question that I think is a pretty popular one out there. And the pathway to stepping away from the royals is a bit of a complex one, but are there colonies have done exactly that in the recent past. I don't know what kind of welcome uh, Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess, she's the Duchess of Cambridge, right? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I don't know what kind of welcome they're going to get. Certainly a lot of people would be keen to have a look. And maybe we'll try to uh, sneak a glimpse down a kitty video or what have you. There's going to be some traffic snarls and some parking restrictions in place, but if you want to talk about the royals, we can do exactly that. Certainly some of the most recent royal visits abroad have not gone very well. I don't know what kind of reception they'll get here, whether or not there's anything organized to applaud and to greet and or to condemn and to mock. But anyway, here come the Royals tomorrow. Okay, pretty cool event in the sky for you stargazers or sky watchers. A lunar eclipse last night, and there were some pretty spectacular pictures. I think I saw one from English Harbor, which was really quite vivid. And just a couple of interesting notes regarding space. So for the first time ever, scientists have managed to grow plants in soil from the moon that was collected back in the uh, Apollo astronauts era. So Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, they brought back this moon dirt, 
And so the scientists, they planted pale cress. It's a small annual weed related to cabbage and mustard. And all the seeds sprouted. I don't know what significance that brings to bear, but it is kind of cool that they now know that they can grow something in the very harsh, poor quality soil that is from the moon. And also, the have you seen the images of the black hole right in the center of the Milky Way? They're pretty spectacular, I have to say. Now, they refer to this one as a bit of a gentle giant. It's on an air starvation diet, so say folks who know more about it than me. They say that, what it, you know, so generally, black holes are gobbling up galactic materials. You know, not even light can escape the black hole. It's hard to even get a photograph of it, but you see in some of the moving pictures, it's burbled and gargled as they look at it. But this one is not eating as much as what people think about when they think about a black hole. So here's this one scientist says, it's eating very little. It's equivalent to a person eating a single grain of rice over millions of years. So not particularly hungry black hole in particular, but very cool images. Okay, let's keep going. So, as we heard from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, last week, about the mask mandates in the school. Now, it's absolutely time to talk about all mandates that remain in place on the federal scene and, yes, whatever remains in place here in this province. And Dr. Fitzgerald says that it'll be a personal choice, and she recommends, encourages, that students and staff continue to wear their mask after the May long weekend, but they will no longer be mandatory. Of course, it's just an anecdotal look around when I use my email inbox to gauge where people stand and what they think about any of these types of moves, it's pretty much a split. I'll guess I got 20 emails about it over the weekend. So people are saying, well, there's so little left in the school year. Why not just leave it in place? You know, that additional layer of security and protection that some people view the mask providing. And then there's, phew, it's about time. So it is a, you know, just like everything else. Some of the issues regarding restrictions have been very controversial, I've long been surprised that the mask has represented such a controversial issue. But anyway, if you want to take it on, we can do it. And of course, you know me, anything in the K-12 system is up for discussion here on this program. And while some regions of the province are doing all they can to keep a French immersion option available where they are. And, you know, I think about the the Buren Peninsula in particular on that front. But let's, you know, we're going to hear and talk a lot about Quebec is just the reality of life. So whether it be about the 2041 panel that's been established some 19 years out from the expiration of the contract on the Upper Churchill in 2041, it is important to understand exactly what it means. And that work, I think, is going to be enlightening. But here's a couple of strange ones. Okay. So remember not so long ago where St. John's International Airport and Edmonton International Airport, they were fined thousands of dollars for damages regarding the official language rights and the violations. So it was adjudicated by the judge that these two airports had a narrow interpretation of official language obligations as as it pertains to their web pages, reports, slogans, social media posts. So this guy, Michael Thibodeau, he's an ardent defender of language rights. And over the years, he has made 500 complaints and has been awarded tens of thousands of dollars in damages. And for these two particular airports, Mr. Thibodeau didn't set foot in either or. So he scans the internet to find what he views as to be a violation, which is an interesting way to go about your free time. But anyway, so compare that and the language rights violations that Mr. Thibodeau and this particular judge have identified. What's going on in Quebec on this front? So now they're proposing new changes to reform the Charter of the French Language. It is going to be extreme. It was tabled a year ago. It's called Bill 96. 
and it will bring upon a huge change. Now, they're trying to protect the French language. Okay. But protecting the French language doesn't mean obliterating the English language, does it? You know, certainly they can't have it both ways to ensure that French is available in all these public and governmental services. So now, you are going to, they're going to see restrictions in the availability of English in education, healthcare, justice. Part of the proposed changes, after you have arrived in Quebec as a new arrival, six months later, you will get exclusive attention in French. Services will be delivered in French only after you've arrived six months. That's a long time, or pardon me, a very short window to have a firm grip on French language, especially if you come in there as a neophyte speaking very little French beyond Bibliothèque and Guy Le Fleur. But that's just, I thought there were a couple of strange juxtapositions and a couple of different news stories. Okay. It's hard to avoid talking about the cost of living, right? And of course it is. Because everywhere you look, everything's more expensive. And our wages not keeping up with the particular cost of living and inflation pressure points. One of the areas where we can all talk about the fuels and the pub going to be more transparent and all those types of things. But it is really becoming a massive concern even when we just talk about food. Good article in the Seab today about food insecurity and how it rears its ugly head and how it impacts us all differently. But it's one of the topics where, I mean, just think about it. We've got a lot of subsidy and support and tax breaks and credits that have gone to various industries during the pandemic to try to see them through so they could come out the other end, viable, doors open, people employed. For the life of me, I can't understand how many people are pushing back against supporting the agricultural industry at this moment in time. Look, I get it. Lots of money has flowed out the door. But when we know that we import 90% of what we consume, and we have the fewest farms of any province, and when a farm goes by the wayside, potentially because of the increased cost of fuel, feed, and fertilizer, just imagine, we have the fewest uh, farms as in any province, we have the poor soil quality, and we have a distinct reliance on importing the goods. How can we afford to see any farms go upside down because of these new pressures? In just a one-week span last week, the price of feed went up 35%. So I'm at a loss as to why people are pushing back so aggressively against some sort of support for these farms and how the support looks. I don't know. And yes, I know. We're broke. I get all of that stuff. But there is a you know, risk-benefit analysis that has to be associated with whether or not any of these farms aren't there next growing season, and we can take it on. There was just a food producer's forum talking about a lot of these things. And, you know, a lot of the food insecurity, it's different in St. John's than it would be in other parts of the province. It's different in Labrador than it would be on the island. A lot of it comes back to poverty. And we can talk about how we address poverty in this country, but that's the basics offered by folks who are working on the front lines regarding food security issues or insecurity. Some 13% of families in this province are currently food insecure. So whether or not we talk about minimum wage or universal basic income, something has to give because the results of having this, these number of families that are food insecure and even folks who had never ever turned to a food bank had been living maybe check to check but fairly comfortably in years before the pandemic, now all of a sudden we've seen a massive spike in people who have had to turn to the government, had to turn to food banks. Food banks cannot be the solution. The numbers of Canadians, the number of people in this province relying on food banks, is a distinct failure in governance. 
We don't have a lack of money. We have a massive distribution problem in Canada. So whether it be talking about soil quality, whether it be talking about greenhouses peppering the entire landscape of Newfoundland and Labrador, whether we talk about new technologies that are available, these discussions are absolutely huge, and we should be taking them on. How are we doing on the phone, Fonts? Let's get her going for a Monday. I'm feeling the Mondays, so we're going to need your support here today. And in, in the poverty world, you know, a tough discussion becomes the social safety nets, social assistance, who's on social assistance, why they're on social assistance, and how much money's coming in the door, whether or not it's enough to keep the wolf away from said door. And fair points and fair questions. When we know that even some fish plants have had to bring in uh, immigrants to work because they couldn't get people to work, there's lots of jobs out there. It might not be the job you want. And yes, we could talk about the rate of pay and the way the workers are treated and the flexibility of hours and any benefits associated with the job. But for far too long, and I hate to use the generalizations, but you know full well there's people receiving some social supports that really are able to get out there and work. They choose not to for the obvious reason. If you can make near or more at home on social assistance, then why take a minimum wage entry-level job? Even though that's a deeply flawed thought in my mind. I'm going to use this as an example. And I'm not condemning people that are on social assistance. Many people require the social safety net. It's a part of how the country operates. And there's obvious reasons as to why it works. But it needs to be reformed. Calvin Wagg. I think I may have met Calvin Wagg at the Hotel Gander. But it was yesterday was the anniversary, 46th anniversary, of Mr. Wagg working at the hotel. And the concept of being able to get a job be loyal to it, work hard, move up the ranks, increase your pay, increase your uh, spot on the totem pole. Mr. Wagg is a classic example. He began his career at the hotel as a dishwasher. 46 years later, he finds himself as the general manager. So we've kind of got to rejig how we think about, talk about entry-level jobs. And yes, we can start with the rate of pay and how workers are treated, 100%. But there are opportunities that start at the bottom that end up on the top. So congratulations and happy anniversary to Calvin Wagg, who for 46 years has been working in the same building, which is an achievement in and of itself. But from washing the dishes, talk about entry-level job, all the way to being the general manager, congratulations to you. Sir, we are on Twitter. And look, someone asked me how we're going to talk about the Buffalo shooting, what have you. No, we can talk about that stuff. But the... The tone and tenor of political discourse and societal commentary has become extremely negative and in many times toxic in different corners. And so if you need or want to talk about that or what comments come from the leader of uh, the Canadian Security Intelligence Services, CSIS, last week, which is really quite alarming, we can tackle those things if you're so inclined. And we can do it on Twitter as well. We're also taking your emails. It's openline at vocm.com. But let us get a tune on the go before we come back and speak with you. It was today in 1970, jumping into the top 10, hitting number five, was Simon Garfunkel with Cecilia. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away.
weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Don, you're on the air. How you doing today, sir? Doing okay, Don. How you doing? Not too bad, I suppose. I want to take a, talk about the non-healthcare system we have. Okay, December the 20th, I had my leg chopped off, released from nostril. I had to move while I was in nostril. Then they were going to give me a leg, but all they authorized was the measurement. Put a sponge on me and measure it. No leg. Then I was home for two and a half months. Couldn't even, I had to pay for health care. Home care, I should say, not health care, home care. Then I applied for a ramp in April of 2021. No money available for the bill of ramp for me. And they want to talk about mental stress? Forget it. Because <laughs> I've been gone through it all now. Now, you get my point on that? I, I think so, yes, sir. Okay, now to COVID. Let's get there. Okay. There's just as many people in the hospital today as it was that the pandemic started. And I just, I hear you on the show all the time. You believe in the scientists. But I never heard you talk to a scientist, a real scientist, not an epidemiologist. Uh, wait, now, an epidemiologist isn't a real scientist? No, what I'm saying is after the scientist creates the vaccine, yeah. that's just giving me information. I hope this flies. Well, Johnson & Johnson got refused now from putting needles in the kids, right? Right. Right. Okay. Now, is this Pfizer going to turn into like Purdue? These pharmaceutical companies, they got all the scientists, and they're ones negotiating all these deals. Now we had the first shot, the second shot, boosters. And everybody's just, the, the numbers don't lie. What you, numbers you, are we talking about? How many people in the hospital today? Uh, I think Friday's update was maybe eight. Pardon? I think there was eight people in the hospital with COVID-related uh, concerns as of Friday, well, I think the number was. Okay, but it's not getting no better. And most of these people, according to your numbers, I think your number was 90% of this population in Newfoundland Labrador Labrador vaccinated. So most of these people in the hospital are not unvaccinated people. Well, I mean, I don't know if you want to hear what the data says based on that, but there's a couple of things that I don't know why people don't factor in. But, you know, we don't know how many cases there are out there. We have no earthly idea. They've changed the protocol for PCR testing so widely that people really don't have much of an idea. But when they, just before they changed it, the numbers of active cases were huge. So I guess the math stands to reason that the more people infected, ups the likelihood of more people hospitalized. Yeah. I know, but the math you're getting, where are you getting it from? You? Are you doing it yourself, or are you getting it from the politicians? No, I'm getting it from public health. Right, exactly. Why? Well, so who, where, who should I get the numbers from? Well, you should go to the hospital. I have an investigative reporter in the hospital. But they sign DNA, all that stuff. I, I don't believe in the numbers. All right. Well, there's not much I can say to that. Uh, so people, you know, people can either take or leave or like or loathe or believe or not the numbers coming nope. from public health. Not okay. much I can I say. I don't believe that. them, number one. Number one, I don't believe them. And number two is now, 
I've been here in my position for two years. Guess what? I still got no leg. I got nothing. And I can't even get a wheelchair. I call. Finally, two years, I get a hold of somebody in this government department. And two years, they're going to put me on a list for an electric wheelchair. Thank God. Now, how many doctors we got in the uh, government? As uh, politicians? Yes. Well, two. The premier oh, and the minister three. of health. We got the minister of health. We got Dr. Fury, the premier. Mm-hmm. We got Dr. Daniel person. Now, is Jerry Byrne a doctor, too? No. No, okay. I thought he was a doctor. No. I made no. a mistake. No, he isn't. But, but all I'm asking is, I'm looking at my phone book here. It's sick. Okay. <laughs> you were talking about welfare a minute ago. Yeah, I'll give you the last word before you take another call, Don. Go ahead. Okay, the last word is, I would want to go to work. I'm in a wheelchair with a leg gone. But no, nobody's calling me, and I'm on, on the welfare, but my Canada pension goes towards that payment, too. You know, I guess Canada pension, 600 a month, 300 goes right back to the government of Newfoundland Labrador. So I lose that 300. And I don't know. I'll imagine if somebody wants to give me a job or a wheelchair, call me. Well, hopefully the list uh, doesn't mean a long wait for the wheelchair. Hopefully that gets uh, attended no. to sooner than later. Uh, Don, I appreciate making time for the show. Hope you're doing okay. Okay, thank you, honey. Take good care. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Let's keep going here. Line number one, say good morning to the Mayor Trapassi. That's Rita Pennell. Good morning, Mayor Pennell. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad for a Monday. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> Beautiful morning here. I just called. I wanted to support the crab license for St. Mary's. Uh, we're not taking from any other communities because right now our fisher persons can't go out crabbing until certain days when the processors are ready to take the fish, which is not good because sometimes this puts our fisher people in danger when they have to wait for permission to go. We are fighting so hard to keep rural rural communities going. Now to see this businessman ready to put his money into a business not costing the government five cents. It's really, really sad to think that the government is not uh, behind those people. The government is talking about regionalisation. Well, they say recommendations has been made to the minister about this application. So it's time for the minister to let the people know uh, what the government is going to do for rural Newfoundland. Well, we don't really know what the recommendation was. And the issue about uh, a new license, like there's another protest uh, for Sa- in St. Lawrence today against approving a license for St. Mary's. There was a protest in Briggs last week because their thought is if we're just going to take some of the crab out of this plant and put it in St. Mary's, then those plant workers will have fewer hours. Those plants will like, le- make less money. That's the argument being made on the other side. And like I mentioned, there's a- another protest. Uh, I think it's at 1 o'clock today in St. Lawrence. Well, you know... Uh, there's neither license in St. Mary's Bay, not one license in St. Mary's Bay. So and those processors are not able to handle the fish. You know, if the fisher people can't go out when they need to go a good day, uh, I mean, you're putting people in danger too. 
Yeah, you know, these types of things happen when we talk about delaying one uh, season or another because, say, for instance, ice. And then you have the trip limit issue and whether or not we're going to very quickly be approaching the molt and the crab has gone soft. I mean, there's lots of things associated with this. And I would imagine there's a fair amount of pressure being put on the minister to not expand the crab processing licenses to anywhere, including St. Mary's, this go-around. So hard to know what's going to happen, but it would be helpful if the minister gave the folks in the area an idea about where we are. Because we spoke with Mr. Anstey, he was the chair of the Processing Licensing Board last week, to give us an understanding of how they approach these applications. But now it's in the minister's hands. So it would be nice to hear from him where he stands, because the silence is deafening. And all that happens is people get more and more frustrated as days go by. Yeah, that's really the thing. If he had the answer, give it to him. You know, come out. I mean, he came to St. Mary's in the night or sometime when people weren't around, so he wouldn't have to speak to him. Well, we're happy to try to get the minister on this program. No problem at all, Mayor Pennell. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate your time. Take good care. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. The, the trip limit, you know, for the harvesters, you can understand their frustration. Let's say I got half my quota taken. And one of the harvesters last week, said that, you know, before long, we will be talking about soft shell. And so if it's a fact of the plant can't currently handle any more product, and so consequently the harvesters aren't going to get it because there's nowhere to put it, nowhere to offload it, nowhere to sell it to, find yourself in a funny spot here. The total allowable catch increased over the last two years about 46%, about 30% this year alone, even though the processors have gone back to the panel looking for a decrease in price, apparently, and we're trying to get some information on that. If there's more and more crab going around, I'm not so sure that the argument is we can't afford to have another plant processing crab because that's a big increase in the last couple of years. And I know, look, the plants who want to keep what they've got I understand that. Why wouldn't you? It's a territorial issue. If I have plant workers that if I had to lose some of my quota would cut a week or two or three off of my time in the plant for this particular species, of course they're going to protest against spreading it around or sharing the wealth. But if you want to take uh, that on or anything else, you can do it after this break. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Eric, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Uh, Just uh, calling in here. I just wanted to ask you something about the Northern uh, Residence Allowance. Uh, Okay. And uh, I was wondering, because I've been here for a few months, and I noticed I've lost a lot of time to uh, the weather and whatnot. And when you mentioned this morning about farming and whatnot being, you know, uh, scant in Newfoundland compared to other provinces, uh, it forced me to make this call. And I wanted to know, I know Labrador residents are eligible for the Northern Residence Allowance, according to the uh, Revenue Agency, like if you pull up their map. But the, the allowance is broken into two zones, Zone A and Zone B. Yeah, they're, well, they're provisional zones, and one is permanent residence. One, you have to work or live there for six consecutive exactly. months inside a calendar exactly. year. Exactly. Yeah. But if you look at the zone B, it's a yellow line. It goes all across Canada, 
and they get that's like half the rate, right? Which would be about two thousand dollars off your taxable income. It's like a, you can claim it's eleven bucks a day or something, isn't it? Ten or eleven dollars a day. Well, you yeah, claim? I think it's a. I think there's a maximum. I, I I was just looking into it, but I I probably was uh, calling you early on it. But I was wondering if you look at the map, it goes right across Canada, and it you know it balloons in some spots and narrows in others, but it goes from Haida Gwaii, British Columbia. Now I don't know if you've ever been to Haida Gwaii. I have not. It's a rainforest, green 365 days a year, and they're in this zone B, which means they get a tax break of about $2,000, which is probably, you know, $800 in everyone's pocket. So that comes across Canada, and it stops at Anacostia and the Magdalen Islands, and they're in both in the zone B. And I'm wondering, why is Newfoundland, the island, not a portion of it in that zone or, or all of it in that zone. I don't understand why it's never, because if you look at the map, it just stops, you know, as soon as it hits the Maritimes and, and then it does, if you were drawing it, you would almost want think it would continue on across Newfoundland, right? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the island of Newfoundland is not as far north as we think it is when we compare it to other parts of the country. But that line, I'm not having seen the map. I'm not looking at it or anything. Well, but I, it, yeah, right, to further, I asked, I asked Google. I said, "What's the latitude of Haida Gwaii? Fifty-three point one three. What's the latitude of Newfoundland? Fifty-three point one four. So, I mean, you know, it, it's it's. I don't know what the criteria is to to for the zoning, but I know that. The weather and whatnot on the west coast of Haida Gwaii like is is nowhere near, you know, to, in comparison to Newfoundland, and they're included in it. And I would think there's a part of you know remoteness and whatnot, and you know I don't know what revenue agency is, but I'm asking why hasn't someone looked at this, you know, sooner? Because we're always trying to keep people in a northern residence, you know, and whatnot. So if the, if they were included, if if the island was included or a portion of the island was included in that, it would be about eight hundred dollars in everyone's pocket. It's an excellent question. I don't really know, but I can also add to it that when I lived in uh, Jasper, Alberta, in the nineties, we got it. We got the exactly. Northern Allowance Credit, which really never made exactly. any sense to me because we're the furthest well, exactly. thing from being north uh, when you're in Jasper, yeah. Alberta. So that's an excellent question. I don't well, know why exactly. it stops with us. And here's Newfoundland, an island like. My wife, you know, she took a car on the ferry, took a, a person with her, $400 one way. You know, that was a lot of money. But like, she had to take a cab, like, because she was discussing the length of time and whatnot during the pandemic and uh, with the vehicle. So I'm thinking, you know, to Vancouver Island, it's about $100 one way, you know, with two people in a car. You know? So I'm thinking $400, you know, that's one way. So that's not driving across to Port of Bass. That's, you know. But that's that's what it cost her to get on there and, and do that. So I'm thinking, you know, eight hundred dollars a year seems only reasonable because that's one trip to the mainland, really. You know. Yeah, I think that conversation gets a little bit lost in just how Marine Atlantic is structured. I mean, we've got. Oh no, I'm not talking. About, I know it's like I'm just saying what what it all comes down okay. to is food. Your everything is being transported. It's costing money, right? I mean, it's just and it's passed on. And there's a cost of living on this island, right? And I'm thinking the federal government should recognize that in the tax structure. And that Zone B could easily include a portion of Newfoundland. You know, I don't understand. If you look at the map, pull it up on Google and you'll see. And it just, you know, it's a yellow line and it just stops. And then you've got Anacostia and the Magdalene Islands, which I think the latitude is 47 degrees, you know, north. 
something like that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not based on how far north you are, even though it's a bit of a misleading characterization to call it the northern yeah. allowance because, obviously, yeah. you've just pointed to some places which are the furthest mm-hmm. thing from in northern Canada that they yeah. qualify for this particular allowance. And uh, I can't remember exactly how it factored out, but I think it was a per-day issue with the maximum dollar associated with it. It's 10 or 11 bucks a day, I think, was the claim that you can make on yeah. your taxes. But that's an interesting yeah. question that you put forward. and. I don't think I've ever well, talked about answer, but, You know, if there's okay. an MP or an MLA or someone who would know something about it, if it's ever been addressed, or if it's ever reviewed, you know, be interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'm happy to follow up with whoever I can think of that would be a reasonable person to speak to the issue, but I'm glad you broached it every now and then. Uh, which is obviously something most welcomed by me. Someone changes up the the topics a little bit to shift the yeah. gears a little bit. So this has been yeah. uh, enjoyable just to even think about it. And so now I'll try to find someone who can expand on it. Good stuff. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Eric. Cheers. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, of course. And obviously, just given the description offered by Eric, it's not simply about uh, latitude as to whether or not you should qualify for this northern allowance, because if you simply put a very direct straight line across, you're not really dealing with some of the population issues that would, I guess, factor in to who does and who does not get that particular credit. So, uh, And this is what I meant when I said the island of Newfoundland is just not as far north as we all think it is. You know, we talk about we're in the North Atlantic, and it's uh, fairly northern reaches here. And one of the listeners just sends me a note and says, uh, YYT, the St. John's International Airport, is at the same as uh, Seattle, 47 degrees. So, again, we're just not that far north. But Eric does offer an interesting query as to why there is nothing, whether it be on the Great Northern Peninsula or wherever it could factor in. So I think that's kind of a, a strange one, but an interesting one to, ch- to chase. Now, he does make mention of Marine Atlantic. You know, it wasn't that long ago where Marine Atlantic was a massive major concern, and he mentioned Jerry Byrne. Well, the first caller mentioned Jerry Byrne. Uh, Minister Byrne was really on the Marine Atlantic file and talked about it a lot. We don't really talk about it much anymore, and we, you know, trying to see what sort of rebound we'll have in the hospitality tourism sector this summer. The Marine Atlantic bookings are really quite strong. People are having a hard time getting a cabin and the like, but of course, are still running on restricted capacity numbers. The biggest implication, you know, we'll talk about fuel and what have you, but the biggest implication that drives the price of passage is cost recovery. 65% of the monies it costs to operate in Marine Atlantic have to be recouped by ticket sales, passage. And that is a huge number. So we talk about it's, uh, it's our guaranteed based on Confederation and the arrangement that we negotiated with Canada upon entering. And, man, it is wicked expensive to travel across there. But their bookings are strong. The people I hear from in the hospitality industry are really quite optimistic about this season. And we can poo-poo, come home here, and all the rest of it. But the numbers of uh, people booked to travel across Marine Atlantic, the uh, last number we saw was 22,000 between June and September, way more than pre-pandemic years, and huge increase from last year. So there's every reason to believe that it's going to be a pretty good season. Now, Marine Atlantic does go on to say that they've seen some cancellations because of what's going on here regarding the price of fuel in particular. So we'll, we can factor that into the conversation about how it's going to look, why it's going to work the way it is. And I'm also curious because it's tomorrow that Toro, the car sharing application, goes live for the first time in the province. They've got some 450,000 uh, guests on that application countrywide. 
I don't know if anyone listening to the program has put theirs forward. And if you have, help us walk through the steps about how easy it was, how cumbersome it was. It shouldn't be too difficult. There are a fair number of protections offered by Turo to screen the guests who will be using your car, those types of things. So if you want to tackle that or anything else, or like Eric, sprinkle in a topic that maybe we don't give enough discussion to or any discussion. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, just quite a, a strange note uh, that I just read. And the emailer says that I can't believe that we're not going to be able to send our children to school on the 24th of May if they're not wearing a mask. That's not what's happening at all. So the mask mandate is actually being dropped. You don't have to wear a mask, period. Now, Dr. Fitzgerald will go on to say that people are encouraged to and to decide their or assess their level of risk based on a variety of different factors. So, no, no one's going to be turned away from school on the Tuesday, the 24th, after the May long weekend if they're not wearing a mask. It's going away. And again, it's a bit of a split in the email as to whether or not people think that's a good idea. But then the same person went on to, obviously, they just have a real good grasp of some serious disinformation in their head. To go on and say why I continue to promote vaccine mandates when that's not what we're doing at all. You know, for a while, their government obviously had a reason, a rationale behind imposing these mandates. And for quite a long time here now, we've been saying it's time for an honest conversation about whether or not they should remain in place. Because, again, government policy, they'll have some intended goal, and in this case was to encourage more and more people to get vaccinated. A way to measure how successful it was and a way to recognize when it's run out of steam. It's come to its natural end. And we're there. Uh, The only, I guess, moving part might be whether or not public health guidance from NASI or different provincial governments will change the definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated because it's remained at two shots plus 14 days. So nobody out there who has yet to receive their vaccination is going to do it because of these plans. Now, there might be the scant couple who might want to take a holiday or something and fly to Jamaica, whatever the case may be, maybe a few, but not enough to make the mandate still a meaningful approach. And if it's all about follow the science, I understand where people will condemn that particular thought because we do know there's different levels of risk, a vaccinated versus not. But air travel has proven to be very safe throughout because like even in the province of schools and even in public public buildings or even private buildings, we know just how effective uh, decent ventilation has been, HVAC systems, HVAC systems and otherwise. So on the aircraft, the HEPA filters that they have in place has proven to be a very safe environment regardless of who you are. So I do think it's time to have that discussion because if we have just come to a point where it's straight up punishing people, then is that sound government policy? Not in my mind, it's not. And again, it's in the same email. It's really quite the collection of uh, disjointed thoughts. Was I made some mention of some of the dangerous rhetoric that is radicalizing people and has become really quite toxic. And we see it rear its ugly head. Now, sometimes I think we get a little bit uh, high and mighty when we look at news that comes, for instance, the United States and think that, well, things that happen there, we don't have that kind of level of worry here, when in fact I think we're kidding ourselves. And you know some of the rhetoric that we're talking about. And it becomes 
so quickly spread and accepted as true, whether or not there's any actual truth or merit to some of these dangerous comments, people just latch onto it. Next thing you know, inside their echo chambers on, on the internet, it becomes a really dangerous source of information. And it's not just me who thinks and says some of these things. It's actually people who are intelligence gatherers, you know, in the intelligence community. They're quite clear on these things. So I don't know what we do about it. I do think it's a fair debate as to what the liberals are trying to impose with regulating the Internet. You know, that's a slippery slope, as people are wont to say. But something has to give. I don't know who the arbiter of truth is. I don't know who gets to tell me what I can and cannot post on the Internet. But some of the things that spread like wildfire have been really dragging us all down. Regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, regardless of what party you're willing and wanting to vote for, some of what happens is just so bloody dangerous. And as people will always point out, that a lie will travel halfway around the world before the truth gets out of bed. And that has never been more true. Given the billions of people that deal with one online platform or another, one social media platform or another, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So this person... You know, that was really uh, quite the email with a bunch of pretty odd and strange stuff therein. But let's tackle it, if you're so inclined. Read uh, what was an opinion piece over the weekend. And this is just moving on to a different topic. And it was, uh, I guess, about gas tax. And gas tax was first introduced in this province as a way to pay for road work and bridge work. And the government takes in way more in gas tax than it spends annually on any work on the province's roads, whether it be repair or replace, bridges or otherwise. So we take in way more. And the thought was, I thought a little bit strange, but it was, what happens if uh, everyone's driving an electric vehicle? What happens to the gas tax and how are we going to maintain our roads? For starters, there's a couple hundred electric vehicles in the province. That's it. So we're not talking about a crumbling tax base at this moment in time. The move, I would imagine, will be very, very slow. Now, we'll probably see an uptick in the number of uh, vehicles purchased annually when prices come back to earth a little bit, you know, and there's more and more infrastructure making it more and more accessible and more and more appealing to folks. I think hybrids are going to rule the roost anyway. But it's kind of a little bit of a silly starting point to think that there can't be a mechanism created to ensure that road work is funded. <laughs> I mean, again... If we spend, let's say, between 80 and $100 million a year, there's an awful lot to be done there. You know, even with the uh, level of taxation on fuel alone, there's a lot of money comes in the door that does not get spent on road work annually, coming from that exact mechanism. And then people will be, you know, I think curiously optimistic about what it might mean for the PUB to be more transparent on how they set the price of fuels. But again, I think the key, in, uh, the key observation has been from this one particular gentleman, Boyd, who says, just knowing how, what the recipe entails doesn't make the outcome any tastier. And he's absolutely right. You know, it is important to have people who are setting prices that have such an enormous impact on every single person here, because you don't have to be a motorist. You simply have to have a few, uh, need to fill up your uh, fuel tank at home to heat your home. So it would be nice to know exactly how it's done. I don't know if it will influence the want for the PUB to invoke the interruption formula, which has become just so common. It's hard to keep track of it. Like, I came back to work last Monday, kind of forgot about the fact that they did the interruption formula again on Friday night. And so the price went back up as I slept, and it's almost hard, it's almost impossible to keep up with all these moving parts. The interruption formula for years was used sparingly, and now it's frequent. 
It's all the time. So the concerns that people have are pretty pretty well documented and understood, and I think Boyd is right. Just knowing how they're going to approach elaborating on the price of fuel and adjustments, holding public hearings, doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see any relief at the pump. So what relief looks like, I have no idea. But even the opposition, when they ask very specific questions, and these are absolutely fair questions, exactly how much is brought in the door regarding the carbon tax? And in this moment, in this province, it's 11 cents per liter. Exactly how much is associated with carbon tax and what is it earmarked for? We were long told that it would be used to invest in alternative forms of energy and the like. Okay, let's get that number. Inside the 14.5 cents, a provincial tax, exactly how much comes in. And if people are looking for an actual break at the pumps, the best idea that I've heard is simply rejigging the way the taxes are applied. So you will have the product itself and the way they evaluate how much that costs, and there's a, a bunch of different ways that they figure that particular number out, spec markets and otherwise. Then the federal excise tax, which has not changed since 1995 when it was brought in by then Prime Minister uh, Kretschmer. In 1987, the excise tax on diesel was brought in, $0.04. Cents. Neither have changed ever since. So apply it. Then apply the HST, and then apply the provincial tax and the carbon tax as opposed to the big numbers finally getting the HST applied at the end. There will be some savings associated with that, and what that adds up to at the end of the day would be a helpful number. Because even if the government says that the five-point plan for savings, a deal with cost of living issues, costs $142 million, I think is the number, and that's $142 million we have to, uh, have to borrow. So the arguments against it are valid in that there is no money to give back we either jack up a fee elsewhere and or we borrow additional monies, which actually hurts us all collectively. But the concern and the immediacy of the just the problems and the pressures that are mounting every single day on individuals could probably have a bigger adverse effect on the economy because if so much of our so-called disposable money is going towards fuels and my cell phone bill and my insurance premiums then everything else that makes the economy move because it's not the government that makes the economy move it's me and you right with whatever monies that we have coming in the door that we don't service our own debt with and just the necessities of life the ability to spend not luxuriously but on a meal out and or to get a new coat or a pair of boots or whatever the case may be because right now so much of the money is going to the bare bones necessities I saw Andrew Coyne post uh, a variety of things on his Twitter feed regarding the median family income, all done in 2020, uh, $2020, all the way back to the mid-70s through today. The numbers of people employed and the, the median family income, it's a fairly interesting look at what's going on across the country, but of course, doesn't necessarily relate to things that are happening in this province. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Let's see here. That's from uh, the Great Northern Peninsula. This is what Member of Parliament, Goody Hutchings, posted on Twitter during the last election campaign. Totally misleading. Well, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, campaign promises, campaign rhetoric is exactly that. Sometimes the promises and what they are speaking to for their short-term, long-term vision doesn't always manifest itself in actual government policy, and we all know that to be true regardless of the priority and or the policy or the promise. Let's go to take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. We'll be looking forward to hearing from me. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. 
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Larry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good to talk to you. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. I just wanted to talk a little bit about regionalization. Sure. I have some major concerns here in that there appears to be a problem in the department on how this is being rolled out to the public. Uh, I have yet to hear the minister be out in front in uh, selling this plan. I'm hearing Amy Cody. I'm not hearing the minister. The minister was involved in a news item in the Telegram weekend edition about, you know, making comments that it works elsewhere. Why can't it work here? I do think we need to hear more from the minister. We certainly need to have some of these big, large, looming questions, especially the ones being asked by the local service districts, you know, about, well, what's in it for me? And that's a real important question, because if you can't describe or articulate what's in it for you, then people are obviously going to reject it. And, and my concern with it is that, and I'll quote Dwight Eisenhower, <clears throat> he said, the plans are nothing, but the planning is everything. Of course it is, yeah. And the serious concern I have is that <clears throat> since the report has been released, the minister has been practically silent. And there are many like me who have been making submissions formally and informally to the department. Uh, and... Those submissions are being taken from us and acknowledged. However, there are very serious constructive criticisms in those submissions. And I'm not hearing the minister say, in public, we've had these submissions from people. They're very valid constructive concerns. We need to look at these and we'll move forward. All I hear is Amy Cody saying, we're good to go. Well, if she if she has the minister's ear, then I'm worried. Well, I would imagine that MNL would have the minister's ear, given the distinct, obvious overlap. The problem, I think, they got off to a rocky start, and like even in the most recent symposium, uh, representatives from different LSDs who applied to attend were not given that permission to join. So. Again, people feel like they've just been uh, alienated and left out. Whether or not that's a fair uh, representation of what's happening, that's how people feel. And how people feel will drive the conversation. And the, I think the larger problem, just from where I sit, is that people have a thought of, uh, peop different people have a different thought of what regionalization actually means. When there are some pretty small examples, which might be the baby steps that different regions of the province take towards more cooperation. I mean, and I've given these examples a couple of times. A good one, Lab City Wabush. So governments remain in place, they retain their own identity, but they cost there to reopen the Mike Adams Recreational Complex. It's been, open, it's been there for 50 years and now it's shuttered because the, we couldn't get some cost sharing arrangement. Now that's been achieved. That's just one example of how partnerships and collaboration can probably be to the benefit of multiple communities. And then it's the issue regarding waste management and the Conception Harbour crew. So Harbour, Maine, Chappell's Cove, Lakeview, joint force with Avondale, Collier's, Conception Harbour. Maybe they can save uh, 100000 plus a year but doing away with four separate waste management contracts. Some of these little things, I think, just make sense to me. How about you? But, Patty, you have to remember that everything these people do and if this report is implemented, it will still be voluntary. The only people who will be forced into this are people living outside municipalities. 
even if you just look at uh, incorporated municipalities, this is not fair stuff. This is real stuff. It, so there's 275 uh, incorporated municipalities. Over 70% of them have uh, average age of over 60. At some point, I think that's the way. It, and if that was inaccurate, I'll find the exact number to uh, offer to the listener. So before long, we either find out a way to cost share, to cooperate, or it's going to happen inevitably. And the next thing you know, there's a scramble. So at that point, it'll probably cost more. It'll be nothing but chaos. So just planning for the future. And it doesn't mean that every, every one of the 25 so-called regions to be regionalized are going to look and feel the same. I think if we don't have the conversation, eventually it'll be forced upon us because the numbers will dictate it. You know, the tax base will be gone, and then what? And I agree. But what I see here, the issue I see is that having done the research on British Columbia, that... <clears throat> They had a minister and a deputy minister who were adamant that everybody would be included from the get-go. They listened to every voice, every voice. And I'm looking here at prior to the report and since the report that nobody is saying we're listening, right? Like... If you don't collaborate, if you don't include everybody, if you don't listen to constructive criticisms, I know we need to get there. We all have the same vision. We all want the best for our communities. We're not the enemy. And all I see is people circling the wagons and forget you, right? We're offering constructive criticisms. There are valid issues with this report as it stands. There are valid valuable criticisms here to be heard and they're not being acknowledged and it's just going to make things more difficult isn't it because yes it is you know i know why municipalities newfoundland labrador only have their members at some of these symposiums and involved in the working groups to come up with this regionalization report but i guess now the pressure falls on the minister's office there's got to be some mechanism that they can implement where all the voices are heard and questions to be asked and hopefully answers to be given because right now like you say you've submitted a bunch of questions and you should be getting answers so the minister's got to do something whether it be a regionalization summit and out the gander we go and the lsds form some sort of umbrella representative group as opposed to every single community has a representative in the room, because the questions will be very similar, so make it manageable. So create what is MNL for LSDs, and let's get back at it, because at this moment it's just a big standoff, isn't it? And yes, there's it not is. going to be much and achieved if the standoff continues the way it is. The sad part of it is, Patty, that we're all reading from the same page. We all want this to work, and we all need to be heard, because if the constructive criticisms that I and many other people like me, whom some of I've talked to, if our valid criticisms are not addressed, this is not going to work. And that's not what we want. We all want to get there. We all want what's best for our communities. And unless we listen to people, unless we address their valid concerns, we're not going to get there. And that's sad. Yeah, I would imagine that the majority of people in the province don't like the thought of regionalization. And that becomes, at this moment in time, it's not insurmountable, but as time drags on, it becomes much more challenging. So let's get down to the brass tacks here. And I think some of those baby step examples, if you could try to come up with 
different community leaders looking to their nearby neighbors to have even just those basic conversations. You know, waste management. Start with that. Uh, reopening the rec center. Start with that. As opposed to here it comes, all in one fell swoop. Today we are operating the way we are, and tomorrow we're changing everything. And all of a sudden folks are confused. They don't have the answers. They think that I'm paying more or getting less. So I'm, I'm with you, Larry. We've got to create something. And it's the minister's responsibility at this point. Create something to get all hands in the room to ask the tough questions and to get the friggin' answers. Well, I shouldn't have well that. B- B.C. did this back in the 60s when there were – the logistics was insurmountable almost. I mean – there was no internet, right? You had to travel to Victoria, right? There were many hours of travel for people who lived in northern BC or the interior, and they were able to do it. Why can't we do it? We can. We absolutely can. You know, reinventing a wheel is a real habit of ours that takes more time, takes more energy, takes more brain power and more money when best practices are out there. You know, we don't have to... Uh, mimic or adopt every single thing that they did in Iceland for tourism or BC for regionalization. But the things that work the best, let's see how they can be implemented here. Because there's an upside to this if we do it right. BC did, they remodeled the county system from the other provinces that had had it. And they made something that worked for them, right? And it works well. Right? It works very well because of the fact that there was collaboration, there was planning, there was inclusion. We can't make BC's model work for us unless we do exactly the same. If we don't, we're hooped. And I think that's a disservice to the people who live in our rural communities. Well, it's hard to argue with that. <laughs> At this moment, like even when I try to use examples, and this is not me pushing or forcing, I'm just looking for examples where it looks like something was a good idea and something worked. Yeah. And so if something works, then let's consider it in other parts of the province that are currently just at loggerheads. But I appreciate your comments and your thoughts on it this morning. I thank you so much for your time. Take care. You too, Larry. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, you know, I don't know if the right thing to say is whether we like it or not, it's coming, but it certainly feels like that. So, if we know that to be true, and we know that people have absolutely legitimate concerns about what it looks like, what's in it for me, because what's in it for me is a fair concern. You know, looking out for number one is part of human nature, even though this quote-unquote collective good should be part of the decision-making, I guess. Anyway, you want to talk about that or anything else, you can do it after the break. Mike's in the queue to talk about the fishery, and then we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Morning to you. Patty, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm burnt out. I'm great game seven exhausted. (laughs) <laughs> I my team did not qualify for the postseason, but I've watched a lot of hockey, and I'm pretty bleary-eyed as well, Mike. I got to say. Oh yeah, I hope the Avalanche do it, and I certainly hope uh, young Alex Newhook gets uh, gets to play in this series. So I suspect it's only a matter of time that he will. Yeah, he's a player to leave off. I and, sure hope uh, so. But when your team is smoking along like that, it's hard to crack oh, back in. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, and you get a lot of very experienced play, players that you're taking on. So, but uh, he's having an exceptional year, so there's no shame in any. 
media there. It's just talking. It's business. And uh, and anybody who knows the game, I suspect, knows that. But I'm an Avalanche fan anyway, so let's see uh, another b- b- bunch of late holidays or late nights, you know. I don't know if I can keep going through this. Well, I'm uh, going to. Had, <laughs> yes, me too. Patty, uh, a couple of very short topics, if I may. One is to talk about the situation on the Crab and uh, and St. Mary's Bay and uh, read a panel's call earlier this morning um, and other calls you've had in previous days about this um, holding up on, the, on, on issuing the decision on whether or not to grant the the processing license uh, to a plant that's ready to go up there in, with investment from the owners themselves and not requiring anything. And the concerns expressed by um, other processors that to give out more licenses would reduce their amount of, uh, or their ability to provide stamps, uh, earnings to plant workers to qualify for employment insurance benefits. Uh, this is a decades-old problem that we have here. It's a blessing, a curse, and a bl- uh, and a, and a blessing uh, that you know you can get 320 hours and then qualify for I think it's 34, 35 weeks of unemployment as well. But it's always been done. It's always been this. The processors use this year after year and product after product, Betty. And uh, I don't know of its truth, but it's a very difficult situation, especially for the union. They represent these harvesters who really don't have a plant in their area. And you got somebody willing to buy it at the prices that are on the market right now. And uh, and they're not able to do this based on an implied threat from the status quo that this will somehow negatively impact them. So, so I don't know what's the answer to this. You know? I know every townie in town, everybody in town is probably rolling their eyes right now. Well, no, I, I and you know, I hear that uh, thought all the time. St. John's is the biggest bay in Newfoundland. There's more, uh, there's more fish offloaded in St. John's Harbor than any other port in the province. So, you know, it, it is a townie issue as much as we pretend it is not. Um, I, I don't know what the adjustment was. To the price. Does anybody listening know? Because the Association of Seafood Producers put in a request to see the price lowered, um, yeah. and that would have been all the way to six fifteen a pound, I believe, yeah. is what they're recommending, as opposed to the seven sixty. And but yeah. you know, there's a couple of different factors that impact the harvester uh, versus the processor and the processing plant worker differently. Like, if in fact, look, the, ter- the territorial issue is easy to understand. Nobody wants to give up what they've got. Right? I understand where you're coming from because if you're operating a plant in Burgess, you want to keep what you got. If you're operating the plant in St. Lawrence, you want to keep what you got. Folks who don't have a plant want to have a plant for jobs and an economic uptick in their area. These are all easy to understand arguments. But for the harvester, if all of a sudden the plants can't handle what they've got, and I have to wait until they free up some capacity. And next thing you know, without me taking my entire quota, we end up pushing up against soft shell. That becomes a problem that could have been alleviated if there was an opportunity to spread the wealth around, spread the product around. So I'm not exactly sure what the right answer right answer is. But I do know, just like in the regionalization conversation, it would be nice to know where the minister is on this. Yeah, he, he's, he's sort of weaseling out on it a little bit, my words, certainly not yours. But, the uh, you know, I, I heard him on complaining, though, why he's got plants in his area and everything else. Well, he's got to put on these big boy shoes here now. And uh, he's a minister and get out. I don't know why these, you know, I heard Mr. Anstey on, I believe, on your program, if I remember correctly, and the processing board or something. Uh, 
give the details out. Put the report out here. We're you know we're we're mature enough to read these things, and uh, and let us see them so that we're not based on you know the backroom dealings of a bunch of processors and and things like that that are governing people's lives. We got to break this vicious vicious cycle. Patty, if I may, I'd like to move on to another sure. very short topic. I know you have other people there. Um, you may recall that a little over a week ago, the uh, federal minister of fisheries uh, released something called the Atlantic Seal Science Task Force Report. Now, I, 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 it's, I've got trouble with acronyms. The federal government and government and provincial government and bureaucrats love acronyms, but this one is ASS, ASS and I think I'll just stay away from that, the Atlantic Seal Science uh, Task Force Report. Uh, but uh, it, it, has, it has rehashed things that we've been saying again for decades, you know, and it, it thoroughly debunked federal science, SEAL science, uh, basically sliced and diced it, and the minister was very congenial about how she appreciated her recommendations. But the offshoot, what's coming out of it, is they are recommending a get-together in the fall. And they want to sit around and start talking about this again. Patty, uh, I, I think it's a complete waste of time to talk to federal fisheries on this. I believe, my opinion is, that over the decades, and certainly since the Maloof Commission in 1985 being released, Federal Department of Fisheries has has not done anything meaningful to move this ahead. As a matter of fact, they obfuscated it to the point that we have 7.6 million or so seals out there feasting on all the fish products that are out there. So I don't know why we keep doing this, send a fool further, you know, kick the can down the road. This is not a fisheries issue, Patty. This is an international trade and foreign relations issue. This is the false barriers, the fake barriers, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the European Union barriers, the the Asian barriers. And I don't know why... FFAW, Unifor, and others would say, oh, well, yeah, please accept these. These are good recommendations. At what point in time do they come out and, and I know it's tough. you got to deal with that department to get your licenses, and you got to deal with them for grants and subsidies and everything else. I know it's tough to take them on. But at what point in time do they come against the silent seven here, and then close the conservative one? But at one point in time, did they say, this is enough of this, folks. We can't go more years. Yeah, but come on and say what, though? That's where I kind of run out of thoughts about say, what say, next say, steps look like. Say, yeah, we, we've had it. We, we don't believe you. This task force has debunked you, Minister. You're, you're really, you've proven to us time and time again, and you're doing it again by delaying this and kicking this down the road, that you intend to do this. And what you can do is you can really pressure the, the, the federal government, the MPs, to do something. They're so quiet out here. Well, that, that's my question, Mike, is do what? Because we can, you know, GFO has limited information on this particular issue, so says the most recent report oh, that they commissioned. We that's can talk about international pressures, what whatnot. The World Trade Organization is not going to reverse fortunes and decisions on this stuff. There's just no chance of that. So what do we actually want someone to do? Well, that's the question no one seems to have an answer yeah. to. There, well, I tell you, 
you're right, they're not going to do it until we make it an issue. And in Canada, because this is such a small issue, but so such a big impact for Canada, Canada has not and will not make this an issue. If the Fish, Food and Allied Workers Union thinks, and if coastal people think this is an issue, because I don't think Townies, I think the Townies rolled her eyes on this, don't even want to see it. But if they think it's an issue and impacting uh, the seal stocks, then get out there and force them to do something in public on these trade barriers. Patty, the world's wanting our support in uh, in throwing arms and billions of do- dollars in, in, in starving countries and, and countries in war and things like that. Do you mean to tell me we don't have some impact where we can go in and say, oh, by the way, we have this pro- these Atlantic provinces that are getting decimated because of th- because of uh, barriers uh, for reasons that don't exist, and we want this corrected. But we're not doing that, and nobody's forcing that. The provincial government, which should have a lead in this for our province, is so far under its desk we can't find it. And the processors, the processors God help us, they just want to profit. They don't want to do the work. So anyway, uh, as they said to me in the shed, some shit talk with the prince the other day, like, nobody really gives a damn. Stop talking about it. But you know what? There's a significant number of people who think the SEAL conversation is over. Nothing's going to yep. change. They think it's done. There, we're not, you know, there's some big markets that we have access to until we grow those. And I don't even know if that's a government issue, well, to be what? honest with you, versus an Where industry issue. Well, how about Where China? They're not out there. Well, how about China? Pretty China big market. Hasn't, no, China hasn't. China hasn't taken our product in years. Well, that's not my Where, understanding. Well, I tell you, we're getting 50,000 seals a year out of 400,000 quota. Now, if China was there, believe me, we'd be taking the quota to, to, to yeah, who, service. Whose responsibility is it to expand the market, the industry or the well, government? You, no, in, government is an industry support service. Government doesn't sell anything. It does a terrible job in business. It's proven itself time and time again. This is business. But nobody in Newfoundland and Labrador who benefit from the fishery out there is doing anything. Nobody is leading this. The province is hiding. The processors, you can't ferret them out. Now, I understand that you can be a target. I know all of that. I've been there, done that. Uh, but and, and but the, the, other than running out a really good video lately, uh, FFAW has done nothing. It just it completely capitulates and says, oh, thank you, Minister. Here, thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll have another sit down in the fall of the year. You know, get out and do something. If you can bring out hundreds of people uh, on a crab plant license, surely to God, if this is as serious as that task force says, and 7.6 million seals are doing out there and impacting the ecology, surely you can get support for that. Stop groveling and go do something about it. Take control and do it. Anyway, Patty, we're talking a circle with you. <laughs> I appreciate the time, Mike. Thanks for the call. I I appreciate. Thank you so much. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Patrick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's uh, Patrick Collin. How are you doing this morning? Very well, man. How are you doing? Uh, not bad, boy. Not bad. Listen, I'm calling. Uh, before I say anything this morning, I just want to say a special kudos out there to you, the, the OCM, and uh, forums like this, like Open Line. You know, I, I've been I've been listening to Open Line. I'm I'm almost 60 years old now, and I've been listening to Open Line as uh, well. 
now as an expat, but as a Newfoundlander. I remember growing up in the 70s and going to my mother's place in Somerville, Bonavista Bay, and listening to the hotline with Baz Jameson, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have to say, Patty, it is the best form of grassroots democracy and what I'd like to refer to as, shall we say, uh, the court of public opinion that you'll ever get. Some days okay. it is. Uh, uh, it, it's the only forum across the province that will make politicians scared, you know, and, and bring to people's attention, especially if it's an issue that's a burning issue, whatever it might be, uh, that's near and dear to the hearts of the good people of Newfoundland and Labrador. So I just want to put that out there, you know, and, and uh, I hope uh, uh, as long as I live, open line will continue. I, I like to see it in the morning, afternoon, and evening, but if we only got one a day, that's it. But I want to say a special kudos out to you, you know, uh, uh, and people like you who take the time to, to listen to our concerns. And uh, you don't know what you got until it's gone. And I hope we never lose it. And I, I want to put that out there this morning because it's probably the best. For, I, I, I've got a background. Uh, well, I've left the profession many years ago, but I had a background in community economic development at the uh, executive director level, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I got to say, this is one of the most uh, 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 the best forms of community economic development from the grassroots level. Anybody, anybody can call in and talk about just the language, as long as the language is clean and they make their points, whatever, you know? Sure. Well, and the show will endure. The host will come and go, but the show will endure, I would think. Yes, yes. But I want to talk about something this morning. I, I, I called a little while ago, uh, but I happened across an article from, uh, from Paul Lane, you know? And apparently he's uh, pushing to have legislation that NPs... Uh, be allowed to bill MCP. And I brought that up a little while ago, and I, I, I'm i bringing it up again this morning for a reason. I hope everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador is listening to this, because uh, as an expat, I'm looking at the, the state of Newfoundland healthcare today, Newfoundland and Labrador. So you're talking about nurse practitioners? Yes, MPs. Yeah, I call them MPs. Sorry for the acronym. I, 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 I uh, but, but nurse practitioners being allowed to, to build MCP in its entirety. Right now, we've got pockets in Newfoundland and Labrador, as I mentioned last time I was on your show, uh, that are uh, that are paying fees. And I think it's uh, terrible, and I think MCP needs to step up to the plate. And uh, Paul is totally right. Uh, by uh, by allowing these fees to continue, we're creating a two-tiered healthcare system. And once uh, you lose your universal universality, it's gone, it's not coming back. But I, I think on a more positive note, and this is where I, I, I'm coming from. Uh, this is a chance to at least partially resolve the healthcare crisis across Newfoundland and Labrador. It won't solve everything, but it's a beginning cog in a wheel that could solve it. It's a chance to attract NPs to work in remote areas, to work in small communities. Uh, in the United States of America right now, I have a cousin who's married to a, a nurse, and, and he just finished his PhD. And he's out there doing 95% of what a doctor can do. He does house visits and stuff like that, right? And, uh, you know, he's able to build up to 80% of a doctor's salary. And I think that's what we need in Newfoundland, depending on your credentials, of course. Uh, you should be able to build uh, MCP and for a decent, a decent fee. Uh, we have trouble recruiting doctors in Newfoundland and Labrador and retaining them. Uh, if we can't get doctors, I'm not saying we need to replace them with nurses. But you know what? A well-trained nurse practitioner where a master or a PhD in a specialty can do just about everything a doctor can do. There's certainly you know? space for and them. Uh, every healthcare professional yeah. should have their 
their training and their accreditation expanded to maximize what they can do for people. And I think that some of that is probably very likely going to happen. We've seen certain examples of it, and uh, not far enough for my liking. Yeah. The billing of MCP seems like a fundamental option to me because folks who have the money to spend, the fee for service, I think it's like th on the average $30 for your first visit, people will do that. But yeah. people who don't or can't and won't, They'll just continue to do what they're doing now, go to the emergency room, or put themselves on a wait list through Patient Connect NL to try to get into one of these collaborative care clinics. And on that front, we're told there's capacity, but people are waiting an awful long time to be placed on the patient roster of one of these clinics, including yours truly. So I'm not sure where we go, but the, look, it, we are already have some of the so-called two-tier out there. There is money actually being spent out of people's pockets to get some health care-related treatment, whether it be in blood collection and a couple of other items that are out there. So this is already happening. We do have to be careful that it doesn't go too far too fast because it cannot be a uh, who you know and how much money you have to determine the level of health care you get. But there's already some examples out there, but I think a very fundamental easy shift that's quite manageable is if these nurse practitioners set up a private clinic to be able to bill MCP. Like I really have never understood the downside of that, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, uh, we've got a lot of problems in, in, in healthcare care in, in our province right now. I mean, uh, like I look at and I forgive me, I'm not sure. I think my numbers are correct, but I stand to be corrected. You know, in Newfoundland right now, uh, uh, we have how many people do we have living in Newfoundland now? About a half a million. OK, just over. Yeah. Uh, give or take. Yeah, give or take 100,000 either way. And uh, we're spending uh, my understanding is we're spending approximately three billion in healthcare per annum. Uh, uh, Manitoba has twice the population are spending half the amount and 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 manitoba is no more no less remote than some areas of newfoundland you know and and i think the problem that we have it's how it's being spent you know and and uh, i i'm not i'm not here to advocate but i think that you know we need to look at creative ways of solving our healthcare crisis you know uh and i i believe the np solution being allowed to build mcp is a, a way to keep rural Newfoundland and Labrador together. Because if you haven't got health care, uh, your, your chances of your community drying up is, is fair to good, you know. Uh, um, you know, But if you've got health care in your community and, and an NP and, and you've got a bit of industry going on and whatever, you've got a chance of saving that community, you know. But health care to me is so, so you should, like, I guess at the end of the day, as, as, as somebody who, who really feels, like up here in the Arctic, we, we have a, a system that's second to none. I mean, I can't believe how remote we are and how well we're treated. And, and, and uh, I wish we could take the best practice model here and, and, and deliver it to the rest of Canada. You would be pleasantly surprised up here in Kelloweed how, I mean, I, you know, I, I see, I see uh, you know, uh, a doctor on a regular basis for health issues. And so does my wife. My wife is due for knee replacement surgery soon. And I have to tell you, uh, you know, Patty, I am so, so grateful for, for the kind of the level of health care that we receive here. And I'm saying, you know what? Why can't we have that in Newfoundland? Why not? You know? Well, you, you uh, mentioned money. Uh, you know, okay, I'll, I'll give you the last word, Patrick, yeah. before they scoop me off to the break. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, but like I said before, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I talked about allocation of funds. But it's, at the same time, I think, you know, at least with NDs, you know, are, are being allowed to do, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, being allowed to build MCP in its entirety, uh, you'll level the playing field anyway, and it's a good first start, you know? And that's all I've got to say on the matter. But I, I, I'm asking uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, if you're listening this morning, to please rally behind this 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 uh, this whole notion that, that Paul is pushing. Because you know what? I think Paul's on the right track. Appreciate the call, Patrick. Thanks for this.
Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and money, we generally have a, a bit of, I think, a flawed thought process thinking that it's a money issue. We spend a third of the budget, $3.6 billion on health care. And if it was only about the money, we would do, be doing much better than we are. And there's a bunch of different things. Like I know a lot of people were uh, quite dismayed about an article in the paper the other day that talked about our diet and sedentary lifestyle, what that means for health care. It's a bunch of different things. The variables associated with our overall health are, it's a huge long list. But again, if it was simply throwing money at stuff, then we'd be leading the league in positive health care outcomes. But unfortunately, we're not. Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's try line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? Well, I would love to say the same, but that has been a little bit changed. Um, I have an interesting story about last week regarding a mall in St. John's. Okay. Well, I was at the mall on Friday and was approached by security. They wanted to speak with me, and I said, sure, happy enough, because I didn't do anything wrong that I knew of, and I thought it happened to be about something else that I had gone to them about. No such luck. Apparently, on Tuesday, I had stolen from the sports shoe store downstairs. Uh, They told me that, and I was flabbergasted, said, what are you talking about? I, uh, Happened to have a severely injured hand due to an accident earlier that day, so I couldn't even carry anything. And there's sensor alarms there, so if I had taken anything, the alarms would have gone off outside. When I pointed this out, the guard said, no, he just started stammering. I asked to see the footage, and nope, they wouldn't show that to me. I was flabbergasted, couldn't figure it out. I called Sport Check the very next day, since it was Friday evening, and uh, they didn't know what I was talking about. I called the Avalon Mall back and was told, no, it's Sports Expert. Sorry, store wrong. Okay, just hold on a second. So someone accused you of shoplifting, but what actually happened? Did they call the police or? I was just approached by security, and I'm very confused myself. Because um, what they told me was I stole from... uh, From a store. Okay, did you have the product that they accused you of stealing? Sorry. Let me ask you a question. Did you have the product they accused you of stealing on you? No. The thing was, it was Friday. Tuesday it happened. And according to them, it was a pair of pants worth $109. I actually, yes, I saw them in the washroom up by the food court and... I never bothered with them. They were hanging on the back of the door in one of the stalls. I figured, okay, somebody left them there. I actually did consider bringing them to security or custodian, but said, no, they'll probably say I took them. Silly me. When I went there on Friday, I was approached. I asked, said, look, I showed them my hand. How on earth is that possible? Nope. They couldn't tell me. Uh, except they started com- 
on Saturday, when I contacted, phoned, I was told, oh, I clicked into the back of my pants and went on. Uh, what? Yeah. They were on a hanger, and the, the pants were skinny and too long. They would have been swaying, and people would have seen. So there's a very, this is a very strange story. Yeah, it is. Okay, so what was the outcome? Well, I'm banned for a year, but on top of it all, apparently there's video cameras in the bathrooms. I called the village. They don't have video, sorry, the other shopping center. They don't have the cameras in the bathrooms. They were flabbergasted. I don't know if there's any cameras in the bathroom. That's something I can attempt to verify, but that is a major league no-no. Oh, I know. I'm very upset and this is a big piece of the information there was a lie here i'm i know this was all one big lie i'm in contact with management for the mall regarding this and they have operations team looking into it but the camera in the bathroom thing is what yeah i'd i'd be shocked if there's actually cameras in the washrooms but uh, that's uh, something i suppose that I can see if I can get any confirmation one way or the other, but I, I mean, and I'm, I don't know. I haven't really examined it or investigated it, but it doesn't sound like something a big company like that would do. My God, they'd be asking for the mother of all lawsuits. Yes. Anyway, uh, anything else that you'd like to offer this morning? Not that I can think of, but this was a pretty interesting situation, and uh, I'm calling bluff a big time. Now, I, if I was actually guilty, I wouldn't be doing all of the pursuing that I'm doing. I feel that 100%. Yeah, it's a strange one to just so happen to have been in with the pants that were shoplifted. Uh, so I'll, no. I'll, I'll see if there's anything else on the, uh, the surveillance front, the camera front. But uh, I appreciate yeah. the time. Hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, I was at a corner store two weeks ago, and I had a funny feeling. The person was looking around, eyes were darting around the room to see what the cashier was doing. I was thinking to myself, this is a piece of shoplifting just waiting to happen. And lo and behold, there it, there it went. And so the person walked by me. I looked at him as if, you think you're getting away with that? And they told me to F yourself. I mean, I didn't even say anything, right? I was thinking, should I just tell the person on the cash what's going on here? You don't feel like being a fink, right? But before I even had a chance to think it through, the cashier said, I saw what you put in your bag. The, the camera caught the person. And dead to rights. Knew exactly what happened. Saw them on the, on the monitor. So did the customer that was being served at the same time. And the customer said, I saw you do it too. And I'm just standing back going, oh, here we go. And the person who was accused simply went off on a big rant. No, I bought that at a different store. Ah, da, 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 da. I'm thinking, man, this is just wild. We, everyone saw it. And nope. They went up one side of the cashier and down the other. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you today? Bye. Right by. How about you? Oh, thanks. Thanks for letting me on your open line today, sir. No problem. No, uh, uh, the last few years I've been on social media and I've been coming back to Newfoundland uh, to protest HMP. And I've been doing it all wrong, Paddy. Uh, I'm coming down May the 19th and I'm going to do another protest in front of HM Penitentiary. But this time I'm doing it for the staff and justice. The last time I came home, I done it for the inmates. 
Well, this time, we got to do something, Patty, that is a revolving door in Newfoundland. It's a system. You're, 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 these police officers are arresting these people. They're putting them in the HM Penitentiary. You still there, Patty? Just listening, Mike. Yeah, they're, uh, they're putting them in HM Penitentiary. They're doing their three or four months. The staff down in HM Penitentiary, they only got, they got to do their prison staff job. They got to do counseling jobs. They got to do uh, drug addiction counseling. They're not equipped with conflict resolution, Patty. They're equipped to be trained in how to correction, how to get an inmate in prison, and how to detain him so he don't go out and harm society anymore. And then they got security issues in there, drugs and knives and different other issues. These staff, they're equipped, and they got the security for that. But HM Penitentiary is so behind that the guards are not up to date with the drugs coming in, with the new weapons that are coming in there. And the staff are always getting the dirty end of the stick. So what about society, government, staff, staff's family, and everybody else stand up for justice in Newfoundland? Because apparently, Patty, down home, the addiction and the mental illness rate is just skyrocketing. And we all know this for a fact. And I've noticed... People call it, my brother's down there helping people with drug addiction and mental illness. My philosophy in life is to help inmates to get trained, rehabilitated, and come out and be productive like I am, because I know you can do it, because I'm a, I'm a productive member of society. I got baptized in church. I don't swear. I'm not a violent, angry, aggressive person no more. I'm gaining my relationship with God. I'm bettering my relationship with me as a person. And I know that if these steps were put in place for these inmates in St. John's, there'd be, the recidivism rate would be dramatically lowered. And the Minister of Justice and everybody now is coming now that there's an election coming up. They're going to build a new prison. This is the same old thing for the last 25 years. And then the staff are getting attacked. The staff are got to arrest these men and they got to restrain them. People are dying. Bodies are getting injured. And it's just everything is getting thrown at the Justice Department. So why don't Justice look at and say, hold on here. Maybe there is a bigger issue. Well, there maybe is. This, yeah, and maybe Mike Williams, we're coming, Patty, and I'm not, I quit my job. This is a, I'm quitting my job on Wednesday, and I'm putting it all in the Lord's hands. So I'm coming uh, May the 19th. I'm not coming for any – I don't want to be arrested like I did the last time. I'm not coming down there. I'm coming with my brother, Harold. We're coming with everybody from church. We're coming from a lot of people, and this time we're not moving until the Minister of Justice, and this is not a threat. This is actually a promise that we could sit down and get something in paper to say, hey, we're going to get something in place. Because, Patty, the crime rate in Newfoundland, specifically St. John's and the little rural communities, is out of hand. They're blatantly... When I was robbing and stealing, we do it in the dark. Now they're doing it in the daytime. They're, they're breaking into your homes. They're breaking into your garages. They're breaking into your cars. We never used to do that, Patty. And these kids are so mixed up on the drugs that they're out robbing to get high. And these drug dealers that are supplying the drugs to the community, they're misled also. And they're, they're human beings also. But they have to be punished also. We have to be investigations. We have to be more funding. You're going to defund the police. No, that, that's sense. not going to happen. And plus, that's a silly yeah. slogan, too. It doesn't no. really reflect what the, no. the topic is. But, you know, like everything else in this world, you have to understand how someone ended up 
in a life circumstance that sees them committing crimes. And yeah. there's a variety of issues there. I, I think it's a similar conversation that we're having with healthcare is some yeah. of the social determinants. And you're yeah. right. I mean, the issue regarding, uh, I'm, I'm always careful to say too much mental health related matters and prison because sometimes people hear that as if you have a mental illness and you're, you're a potential criminal. Well, that's not true. And we all know that's, and that's not true. That's not true, Patty. You no. know what I'm saying? Because mental illness, it affects bulimia, affects people's weight. I've seen a video of this lady showing up to Lahey's with her friend to pay 10000 for a wig and he berated her and bewildered the lady because she was going in and she wanted to take her hairpiece off in private so Lahey they bewildered and belittled the lady so mental illness stigma is not only oh I'm a criminal yeah no and just because the time on the clock we'll have to leave it there but I appreciate the time this morning Mike and for you and Harold to be trying to stand up for what goes on is a good thing appreciate it I appreciate you take care thank you okay bye bye um the bricks and mortar, Her Majesty's Penitentiary is a terrible place. And I know many of you think these conversations are unnecessary because, you know, someone committed a crime and we're not supposed to put them up in the Ritz-Carlton. Fair enough, but what goes on and the state of that facility is has nothing to do with rehabilitation. It is 100% to do with punishment. And that's not in any of our best interest. If you come out worse than when you went in, that's not a good thing. Now, just building a new prison doesn't change everything. You know, like just building a new mental health facility doesn't change everything. It's nice to have something modern and safer for the guards and for the prisoners alike. But we've got, you know, so I think we might call it a revolving door. There's a lot to that. So anyway, the topic that's up for debate after the newscast, that is entirely up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Just to pick up on the last conversation regarding the penitentiary. It's not that long ago that the selected site was out in Harbor Grace. You know, there will be some consideration given to the location of a penitentiary as it pertains to proximity to hospitals and, of course, the courts and what have you. Even though a lot of these things have been done virtually, especially, you know, appearances in court. But I think there's the same conversation when it goes to the four regional health authorities being merged into one entity. It's not that it can't work, although it would be a bit of a behemoth to navigate. And, of course, it will come with identifying some efficiencies you know the minister says that they don't anticipate major job losses but of course they will result in some the big question will be where some of those jobs are because i think people outside the metro area or on the northeast avalon are justifiably asking questions along those lines where are the jobs going to be if you relocate everybody into eastern health offices and of course you're going to have to rent more space then what because people do need representation where they live you know, we do not need all of the middle managers and, uh, and executives at the regional health authorities. We simply don't. But if you lose contact with the people making decisions, it will just further exacerbate some of the worries regarding health care anyway, won't it? I think the major concern being voiced is on the Great Northern Peninsula and in Labrador. There's already lots of concerns about access and medical transportation programs and the time of travel and all those things are completely understood. 
but there will be questions about where all of those jobs are located. It's, it sounds like a good idea to merge them all into one, but the devil's in the details. Same thing when we're talking about merging the Newfoundland Labrador English Speaking School District all into the Department of Education. That also makes sense to me. And then we'll just see if that changes anything with the way that we structure curriculum, deliver education, the class size and composition, the things that really matter on the ground. Are they addressed by any of those particular moves? The government has extended some of the spend in education, I think, uh, and rightly so, whether it be about the additional number of student assistants that are in the pla- that are in place, also the number of guidance counselors that were brought in. And, you know, when we talk about the numbers of young people in the K-12 system dealing with anxiety issues. The numbers seem to have grown. I don't know if it's a new approach to diagnosing what might be one wellness, illness, health measure, but the numbers are growing. So even if we talk about some coping mechanisms for the more, what's the right way to put it, the more easily managed issues, because the way that uh, students behave in school goes a long way to their ability to learn and the, the ability for everyone else to be attentive in class, given all the disruptions. So the guidance counselor issue for the longest while was one guidance counselor per 500 students. That is a pretty unmanageable number of students. Not, not every student is ever going to see a guidance counselor or have the need to visit, visit the guidance counselor, whose role has expanded over time, and still so with that, those numbers of students that they have to be responsible for. It's as much as over 10 years ago where the recommendation on the guidance counselor issue was one guidance counselor for 333 students. And all these years later, no real measurable difference has been made regarding the number of students that one guidance counselor would be responsible for. It's also something I don't think many people are aware of is that there's a variety of psychologists that are in the school system as well. I think for the NLESD, there's 40. Now, we've had Dr. Janine Hubbard on the program talking about uh, psychologists and some of the major issues that they're facing here in the province with the number of vacancies. And that has a ripple effect surrounding even the ability to bring new psychologists in to have the numbers of uh, mentors available for them. So all of these big moving parts are, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that any of this is easy and there's just uh, simple solutions readily available, but these shortcomings are really being felt probably more distinctly than ever before. Because, pardon me, remember, healthcare professionals just aren't your GPs and specialists and nurses and nurse practitioners. We are also talking about the dearth of numbers of mental health professionals here in the province. So again, just like building a new penitentiary doesn't change everything, just building a new mental health facility doesn't change everything. And you know, Christy, I think uh, I saw her most recent tweet was, this is your 76th weekly reminder about the improvements required for long-term care, long-term care in mental health, the continuity of care. Some of the stopgap measures that have been put in place have been helpful, but they're not the be-all and end-all, whether it be the Wellness Together numbers that we try to give out to just in an effort to be helpful for people, and people ages 12 to 35 relying on the Jacob Puddleston Memorial Foundation, and they've closed their wait list simply because of the vast number of people looking for their services as opposed to the government provision of services. So there's a lot to that. Here's an issue brought forward by a member of the traveling public. Had to go to St. John's International Airport twice this week, pick up a couple of buddies. In both cases, the wait time for luggage was between 45 and 60 minutes. The reason why, I have no earthly idea, but if you want to chime in on some your travel-related measures in the last 
number of weeks or months or throughout the pandemic and your plans for travel this summer. I'm looking forward to getting a change of scenery, getting out of Dodge for a while. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad, thank you. How are you? Oh, doing good. Thanks, and thanks for having me on your show. Uh, good show as usual. Uh, Patty, I was going to talk about the side-by-side issue. I heard uh, Minister Studley on with you on uh, Friday, and uh, I must say she's well-spoken. Uh, but what I want to bring up, like she's talking about side-by-side and the helmet issues, and she mentioned that all the manufacturers uh, recommend helmets, but they recommend, but they don't require for side-by-side. And the reason why they recommend is a liability issue if someone went back try to make a claim against a manufacturer and for that reason. But I, uh, what else I was going to mention to you, I know one gentleman in particular, uh, if he gets in side-by-side with a helmet where he's a, a big man, he's not going to have no clearance. And, and this is what they got to take a look at. If you're driving a side-by-side and you're on the trailway and there's a lot of dips or whatever, someone's going to end up banging their head off the roof from the helmet and you translate into neck injuries. And I think that's something they got to look at. Now, I'm, I'm all for safety and, and so forth, but she mentioned about incidents and accidents happening and injuries, but if they go through their statistics, all accidents have been happening either to impaired driving, reckless driving, uh, people crossing roads in front of vehicles, and, and so forth. If you look at all the accidents that have happened, the majority of them, or almost all of them, could have been avoided. Yeah, which I guess the intention mm-hmm. of ensuring people have a helmet on. Uh, right. I, I get the argument. There's a fellow belo- belong to me, a guy I know who has a side by side, and he's about my height, maybe six three, right. and that's his argument: is that I don't yeah. have room inside the side by side to put on a helmet. Now, yeah. I don't know how much additional height you gain by putting on a helmet. I guess maybe a couple of inches, uh, I suppose. So he mm. he sees it as a bit of a problem. There are some yeah. exemptions with seatbelts and what have you. If you're using your side-by-side for hunting or trapping, frequent stops, speeds below 20 right. kilometers an hour. But all of these rules, you know, I think some of them just make all the sense in the world because how many times have we heard a story where one person or another was seriously injured or killed and wasn't wearing a helmet? So it makes sense to make it a mandatory feature. But if it's if it's not enforced, then it's just another bunch of words on a piece of paper. So... The two have to go hand in glove. The RNC and the RCMP will already tell you that they're stretched pretty thin. I would think especially the RCMP. So will we see any additional enforcement? I really don't know. Yeah. Well, according to I did a bit of homework. According to what I got from a certain individual in in the industry, side-by-sides, like even the side-by-side, well, you got a seatbelt. Now, they're not going to have airbags because, I mean, they're not what you call a really high-power vehicle. They're not going to be going fast like a vehicle on Trans-Canada Highway. But they do have roll bars. And, and I, I asked that question and said, yes, where, if they got a roof, there's a roll bar there. And you got your seatbelt on, so you, you're embraced. But with the helmet, this gentleman I talked to, he said, well, even with the small helmet or half-size, wherever time, but I got no clearance. And, if you, and the trails are a lot of dips where you're going to bang your head. So what they're going to have to look at, 
I agree what you're saying as well, that they're going to look at you're going to probably have people are going to have neck injuries. Because if you start all of a sudden you're banging your head off the roof, whatever, you're going to have whiplash or neck injury. So, yes, I'm, I'm all for safety. And I, and I had a situation where I had an ATV cross in front of me. He didn't even look. I was a lock under the brake, and, and, and he didn't even see me. He didn't even look where he was going. So most of that's happening, too. So when you look at their statistics, they're going to look at most of the accidents were due to uh, not – as carelessness or other issues as well. So, uh, you know, it's, it's always try. It's hard to please everybody, but my take on it is that what do you do if someone gets in like your buddy and you got no space and he hits a pothole or dip and he bangs his head off the roof? You're you end up having head injuries or neck injuries as well. So I think they should revisit that way, and I think they do have the right to amend things as well, right? So, and yeah. that's my take on it, basically. Well, there's a lot to it, you know. Every now and then, I'm really kind of questioning myself as to how we should talk about some of these really unfortunate stories regarding someone who got hurt or killed not wearing a helmet or someone drowned not wearing a lifeboat i never want to sound like you know what i'm condemning the poor decision one person or another made because that just really comes across as quite grotesque but if we talk about it in the in the broad strokes you know wearing a helmet's a good idea whether it be on your pedal bike your skateboard your scooter on your atv right. your snowmobile and wearing a life right. jacket is probably a really good idea regardless of what kind of body of water you're going out on you know if you're exactly. not wearing your life jacket on a uh, a 65 footer that's chicken car just off of Belle island that's one thing right. it's quite another if you're going out and taking on some absolute measurable risk and not wearing a personal flotation device. Right. But anyway, people make their own decisions. It's just sometimes I think, you know, we don't give it enough thought. Same way right. when you get in your vehicle and you don't uh, you don't put on your seatbelt. Or the same reason when you get behind the wheel of your vehicle and you're checking your phone. I mean, we just, we exactly. know better, but we just do it. Right. No, no, exactly. And like I said, when Minister Stooley said, like, the manufacturer recommends, but... She didn't state that they don't require a helmet. It's just a recommendation, but it's not a requirement for the side-by-side. So uh, so I just want to bring that to your attention as well. Try to please everybody or try, you know, it, it, is, it is a big task. And overall, they're doing a good job with it. But I think this Samuel seriously needs to be really taken a look at because I think you're going to see people with head or, or neck injuries due to mm-hmm. the size. Uh, I mean, everybody's a different size, right? So yeah, Helmets save lives. Uh, so that's one thing that I will say, and I don't think there's much in the way to dispute that. Yeah, and I totally agree. It do help save lives as well. But I think you might have to look at that avenue, especially if you got a roof on and seat you're you're in fastened to a seatbelt. Uh, you know, so sometimes you might have made a tweak and make a bit of an amendment to it all as well. But I'm all for safety as well, Patty. I, I totally agree. But I, I see problems coming that way as well, right? Because most people buy their side by side, they get in and they fit it out for the clearance for their head, whatever. Now you got a helmet on there, so the helmet's going to be up higher. And and you not have much room now. If you had good roads, there was no dips or whatever. But then trailways are all full of dips or whatever, so you could end up having an injury that way. So something to contemplate and take into consideration as well. Appreciate the time, Daryl. All right, again, thanks for your time, Patty, and keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, man. Take care. All the best to you. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Bye. And you know, and then the the questions being asked, which I don't think are necessarily on point, is, well, what about someone driving a convertible? Right. I'm not so sure that's the same thing. The propensity to roll in your convertible road machine, your Sebring, isn't the same as your side-by-side for a variety of obvious reasons that are attached to it. 
But uh, this person makes an interesting point. The same person who, quote-unquote, can't wear a helmet in a side-by-side is probably not going to wear a seatbelt in one either. Helmets save lives. They do. Absolutely. I mean, it's indisputable that helmets save lives. But anyway, you know, there's... And I hear from people say, look, it's way of life where I live, and if I'm just scooting from one house to another or along the side of the road, I don't need a helmet. I'm just taking my time, and I'm getting there. A lot of things can go wrong as we're just taking our time, so to speak. Okay. And again, this will all boil down to whether or not there's any increased investment in enforcement. It's one thing to have it in the legislation, and we know all kinds of things that are in the legislation, whether it be the the Highway Traffic Act, and people know better, but they still do things that contravene that piece of legislation. So, you know, I do have a hard time understanding just how aggressive. I don't know what it's like where you live, but where I live, the aggressive nature of folks on anything that has an engine is off the charts. Whether it be a dirt bike or an ATV, and yes, every road vehicle, some of them aren't road worthy, which is what I almost said, but the aggressive nature of driving is unbelievable around here. And again, with the number of red lights in the city of St. John's, you are going nowhere in a hurry. Uh, someone says that uh, they're really disappointed that I besmirched the Royals off the top of the show. When I didn't, I didn't really say much about it, other than the fact that all the most recent polling shows that uh, more and more Canadians year over year are not that interested in the monarchy and the role that it plays in Canadian government. Okay. I don't don't begrudge them a visit. They can come if they want. The fair question being asked is exactly how much does that cost us? I don't think that's an unfair question. That doesn't mean that you hate Prince Charles. It's just a legitimate question about some of these cost issues. Last time they didn't want to stay at government house. There was an additional bill there. Some security measures are fairly expensive, I would would imagine, for a very brief visit to the province. There's also questions about what uh, different parties have been invited formally for a hello, an eye-to-eye with the prince and or Camilla, which I think I said she was the Duchess of Cambridge, she's the Duchess of Cornwall, and there is a difference. Of course there is. So, yeah, I don't think anybody should be put off with a, <coughs> pardon me, oh, throat's pretty dry, a question about just how much it costs for security, because that's an absolutely legitimately fair question. I've also been told that there's some sort of protest that has been organized. The person did not provide the details, and so be it. Because the way the royals have been received on many of their most recent trips has not been kind. Their tour of the Caribbean for, with uh, William and Kate was an absolute disaster. It was. Before they even sat down for their formal conversation with the president of the Bahamas, he said, we're out. We're out. Same, as the thing, same thing in Jamaica. They really have very little patience left for the monarchical rule, which is not what it once was. And, of course... I think at that same time I said that they were really uh, poorly welcomed in some of those countries and that the colonization that went down, well, I think the exact same thing can be said here for a lot of people, whether it be with uh, the so-called settler and indigenous members of the province. There's a lot of there's a lot of historical issues which can be rightfully pointed to as a black mark. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we can wrap it up by speaking with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the CEO at Food First NL. That's Josh Schmee. Hi, Josh. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? 
I'm pretty good. I'm really pleased to see that there's more and more focused conversation regarding food insecurity and some of the contributing factors of it. You just held a regeneration conference. Basically, what did that entail before we get into some of the deets? Yeah, sure. That was actually, uh, we weren't hosting. We were sort of uh, playing along there. There's a new group called the Food Producers Forum out there that organized. It was a great conference. We and me and my team were were sort of co-hosting a bunch of sessions. And it was a mix, I think. And it was an interesting one. I think we've had this conversation before because there was a lot of people on there to talk about food production, right? How do we grow food differently? How do we, uh, you know, how do we take that sort of control over our food systems? But then I think more than we would have seen a few years ago, and just to your point, there was a ton of conversation around food insecurity. I think people are really getting that, you know, producing more food locally is, is one part of food security for us, but it doesn't, it doesn't work unless we get at the other part, which is like, do people have, do people have the money to access that food? Do they have the food coming in anywhere near them? Those kind of pieces. And so there was, it was, yeah, three days of online kind of conferencing. People voted on priorities at the end. It was really interesting for us to listen into. The, you know, I think it's a very similar conversation to what people might think is the so-called just transition. It might be one thing to you, another to me, another to someone else, as opposed to inside of food insecurity, food accessibility. So many people have a different thought as to what that means. It might be prices in Labrador. It might be access to fresh fruit in some parts on the southwest coast of Newfoundland. So how do you want people to think about it? Because until we have a, an understanding of what we're trying to talk about, what we're trying to achieve, then we'll be all scattered in all directions. Yeah, I think the best way to think about it is, and the, is that we're talking about what do you need to access the food that you want? right? Because the food that you want is, and the food that you need is different for each of us. So you might, for example, uh, say you're uh, a Jewish or Muslim person, you need to eat kosher or halal. Or say you are someone who needs a special diet um, because of medical condition. The food, your food landscape looks kind of different than, than, than the next person over. But what do, you, what do you need to access that food? Usually it's two main things. You need the money to buy it, and you need for that food to be physically accessible to you, so somewhere to go get it. Uh, and those are the two like biggest pieces. And then the other, I, I think the other side of it that I often think of is if we give people that, if we give people the money, if we get people the money to buy it, uh, if we give them the physical um, sort of accessibility to it, where's that food coming from? Is it local? Is it doing the best that it can? Are we getting the most out of producing food for our community and, and for our local economy. And that's where you get into, you know, local production and, and, uh, and distribution, that kind of that side of food security. But really it's about, I think it is about access first, uh, but you, access can mean a few different things. A hundred percent. We've really, in my estimation, let governments off the hook with this reliance on food banks. I mean, God bless the people who are actually doing the hard, the heavy lifting on that front. But that has been the backstop that government has quietly relied on. Some four to five million Canadians rely on food banks all the time. I call that a distinct failure in governance. What do you think? I, I totally agree. I mean, think about it. Uh, is there any other social service that we would do that? Right, that we would that we would download uh, an entire area of support for people to what are mostly volunteers, right? Like a lot of um, food banks and meal programs, the vast majority of it is based on charitable donation, uh, and it's based on folks, you know, getting together and say in a church basement to to provide that service. And you know, we wouldn't manage healthcare that way, right? We wouldn't manage, you know, any other vital service for folks. But you know that that infrastructure, and there's a, always a danger of this, right? It was. 
food banks and, and, and that whole infrastructure, really, we only built them up in the early 80s. And at the time, it was supposed to be a short-term response to, you know, the recession that was going on then. Uh, and we're 40 years on now, right? And that's always a risk. I think it's 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 really you always got to worry about that when you're working in communities. If you do if you do a good job at solving a problem, does that become a permanent solution that people start to rely on? And and so, you know, we yeah we've been decades now, uh, and as long as that system is there, it it is sometimes a little bit too easy to to pass off responsibility or to misunderstand what that system does. Like I remember during Snowmageddon here in in eastern Newfoundland. Uh, you know, food banks and meal programs are not set up to be disaster responders, right? But they were often kind of the go-to for people. People, and uh, and so like, there's there's sometimes a misunderstanding of how much that system can do, how it works, and and how it can fit in. And I think like we're learning more about that over the pandemic. We saw some really good research come out that showed that less than 10% of people who are food insecure ever even knock on the door of a of a food program like that. It's only the tip of the iceberg, anyways. Uh, and so like. More and more we know that, and I think, you know, the people who work in those programs are like the first ones to say that the solution has to come from somewhere else, right? Absolutely. Um, so a couple of things. When we talk about access, what, how should communities tackle this? Because thankfully there's a lady in my neighborhood who's made an application through the city of St. John's to create a community garden in the green space behind our houses, which I think is a great idea. Community gardens can be part of it. You know, new technology and greenhouses can be part of it. Maybe far too often we're looking towards, say, for instance, the provincial government to instigate these types of conversations and or supports. What would you, what would you say to community-minded uh, folks or community leaders about doing more where they live to make food more accessible and some cost-efficient access to? Yeah, you know, one, one that doesn't come up enough, and I, I want to flag here, is I think people should think about transportation a lot. Um, so, you know, there and, and there's a couple of ways that that can work. And we just did a big food assessment in St. John's and people told us a ton about transportation gaps, because especially for folks who are earning a bit less, most of those folks don't have access to a car. And if you don't have access to a car, you don't have access to a lot of food. And so, you know, at the neighborhood level, we can think about how do we solve for that? You know, one thing we've seen more and more, for example, is community-based delivery services. So uh, it's much more common these days, even for folks who are accessing kind of emergency food charity, to have that dropped off at their door, which is way less uh, stigmatizing than sort of lining up to, to get your food box, but can also extend beyond, you know, food charity. So I think, think about transportation. Are there things you can do in your neighborhood to make sure that people who would struggle to reach a store uh, can have the same access to food as those who can? And I think that's especially true in rural parts of the province. So, you know, if you're, say, a senior citizen who doesn't drive anymore and you live in a small community, what are your options? You know, it's whatever you can order online. And that's, you know, say from often from a big store like Walmart that might send to you and whatever is available in the in the neighborhood store or gas station. And there's that's often a little bit limited. And so the more we can do on transport, I think, is a big one. Community gardens, absolutely. And there is some good infrastructure there. There's funding. There's tons of resources. We have a bunch on our website on how to get those going. But I think, yeah, on, on one side, like the infrastructure piece is transport. And then the other piece is like pushing is more of a policy thing, pushing the people who represent us, you know, on the on the economic access side. We need to get more money in people's pockets who are low income. And that's mostly a government piece. And so I'm always saying to people, you know, every time you you do one thing out in your community on this, go and send a letter to somebody to say, what are you doing to solve this problem in the long term so that we don't kind of get stuck again in, in, in creating these systems? Hey. 
Yeah, the transportation and the seniors issue, just look at uh, the town of Balleen. They do a tremendous job down there. They got it figured out. So they'll do some bulk buying. They'll have some delivery baskets made up for seniors. So it's kind of a one-stop shop. Kind of eliminates the need for the individual senior or the carpoolie to go and buy these uh, these items. So I think they've got a, a good idea going down there. Uh, I know this is not necessarily your ballywick, but you talk about production. What kind of conversations did you hear surrounding the issues that the farms are facing? Because the cost of fuel, feed, and fertilizer has absolutely gone through the roof. We have the fewest number of farms uh, as per any province in the country. What did you hear on that front? Yeah, So, and, and there's some new data out on that too. The agricultural census just came out. Uh, and one thing that really struck me was that the – uh, the the amount of land in production in this province has fallen by 50% in the last 20 years. So we had 40,000 hectares in 2001, and it's down at about 20,000 now. So it's a real, it's a heavy lift. And then, and I'll be honest with you, uh, I'm not sure that anyone has a solution to this yet because you're right. Uh, it's a little bit of a perfect storm in the production side, right? Like costs of inputs are are going way up, uh, and that is going to push prices up. And there's probably a limit to which. Uh, people can can pay those prices, right? So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a few things that you you do here. One of them is that there are still lots of people really interested in entering agriculture, or doing food production work. There's lots of people trying to access land. There are people who still have a a vision for how to how to get started there. There's some really cool things helping people get over that initial gap because it's really expensive to get into food production. So there's things like, you know, up, you've probably heard of, up on the O'Brien farm here There's a, in St. John's, there's a farm incubator now where a young farmer can, can get their start with a patch of land, those kind of things. So there are some, there's some barrier breaking happening at the entry side, um, but I don't know that we have a solution for the, for the price side and for the input side. I mean, there are there's a ton of work being done on creative ways to farm. And I think one one thing that we will see is that farmers are getting and producers are getting more and more engaged on how they can be part of uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And that's one thing to think about here is that, you know, as much as food production plays a role there, there's also going to be resources. You mentioned the, the kind of just transition conversation before, you know, as a country, we're going to be plowing a ton of money and, and time into making that transition happen over the next number of years. And I think like as much as food producers can be a part of it, there's going to be a chance to maybe find some some business models or find some alternate streams of revenue that help support food production. So like that's what one thing that I think people do have their eye on is like how to how are farmers going to fit into that switch over, right? Losing any farms would be devastating. Uh, and the last one before I let you go, and this is back to, you know, a lot of food security issues, uh, of which there's 13.4% of households in this province are food insecure. It generally relates back to poverty, even though that might be a bit of a sweeping generalization to apply to the issue, but it's certainly a big part of it. You talk about uh, money in people's hands. The pushback is the same stuff you hear all the time is we don't have the money, number one, without actually looking down the other side of the ledger and understanding what the implications of food insecurity actually means, whether it be interaction with the healthcare system, whether it possibly be interaction with the criminal justice system, two of the most expensive line items in every budget, night in the hospital and night in the clink, and what it means to your overall health and the family unit, everything. So help people understand what you think the the upside is to addressing with money in people's pockets. You know, if you say universal basic income, you're some sort of wild left-wing lunatic socialist, when in fact there's a big result that we can get for people addressing their food insecurity issues with actual money in their pocket. How do you want people to think about that one, Josh? 
Yeah, so I, I think you covered one piece of it, which is that like when people don't have the money to buy food, that doesn't that costs the system elsewhere, right? It costs the system all sorts of ways. So when you think about it, um, someone who doesn't have money to buy food, for, so first maybe they have to access an emergency food program. So instead of that person just buying their own food with their own money, someone is now paying to you know run a food bank with a you know a warehouse and a distribution network and and the staff and the volunteers to get that person some food which might not be the food that they need so some of it has to go to waste you know it, it's just it's a really inefficient way of of getting food on someone's table compared with just handing them uh you know a little bit of extra cash and and you know one thing we have seen you know, uh, ourselves and other other program providers have shifted a bit uh, in emergency food, even to giving people just gift cards for groceries, and it works fine. You know, I think we 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 got to work our this suspicion out of this system a little bit. And but then also, of course, it's not just the cost of the food program. You're exactly right. You know, that a lot we have a tremendous amount of healthcare costs that are attached to folks uh, being food insecure, and, and, and there's many health consequences for that, right? So we're, we're paying those bills either way. Uh, it's not like we get away from them. But right now we pay those bills in the worst possible way, which is that we put people through a really difficult situation and then have to pay for emergency responses, and that's always more expensive than preventing a problem in the first place. Uh, so, you know, I think it's prevention, you're right, it's hard. It's hard to wrap people's minds around it. Um, and it's expensive, especially it's expensive at the beginning because you're paying to prevent something, but you're still for years going to be paying for the impacts of not preventing it before, right? So there is a time when it's going to cost more money to do the right thing on food insecurity. But I think when you talk about costs too, it's not all government costs, right? You also have to talk about things like the minimum wage here, right? It is easily possible right now if you are earning full-time hours at minimum wage for you, your household to be food insecure, right? And that, that shouldn't be happening. And so the more that we push people out of food insecurity uh, within the employment market, the less than that costs government, right? Because social assistance, basic income, all that gets cheaper if people are just earning more money at their jobs. So there's a, there's, a, there's a push and pull there. And I think, you know, the basic income one has really shifted in the last couple of years. You're right. It used to be a kind of wild-eyed thing. But it's not now. It's a, it's a policy option. People are doing research. We kind of know how much it would cost and how it would work. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. But I think if it does, to be honest with you, I think it'll be one of the Atlantic provinces that does it first. There's, there's, there's lots of reasons for that. Yeah, probably. I mean, government's approach has been ineffective, inefficient, and generally speaking, those two things combined are always more expensive. Uh, Josh, always good to have you on the show. Last word to you, sir. Yeah, thanks, buddy. I, I, I'd encourage people who want to get involved in this conversation just to – uh, follow Food First right now. We have a few public conversations going on. We're leading a dialogue for the rest of the year about the future of emergency food and food charity in this province. So if this is kind of tweaked something for you, reach out. There'll be opportunities to, to play a role in that. And we really want to hear from people who have the experience of not having enough food on the table. So, uh, you know, we have lots of resources to support people in that process. So reach out because we want to hear from you. And those numbers are growing, unfortunately so. I uh, appreciate yeah. making time, Josh. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. All pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Josh Mead. He's the chief executive officer of Food First NL, and the numbers of folks who are food insecure and even just simply struggling with, you know, the fear that comes with walking in the grocery store, and it's real. The amount that you put in your cart and then you see the result of the sum on the till, Let's take our final break of the morning. Talk away.
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. I know I do it to myself, but every time there's any mention of things like uh, guaranteed basic income, universal basic income, it gets the same old pushback all the time. Is that, you know, down with socialism, down with communism, what have you, when in fact we're, we're a social democracy. I think most people realize and understand that. What I don't think has been included very often in the universal basic income conversation is even if we're talking about addressing food insecurity, if we add up every single dollar that's spent, as Josh Me well articulated, about how we approach putting food on people's plates at this moment, the cost and the completely inefficient operations that are currently the government structure to it, put all those dollars with every dollar inside of any of the social safety net programs, boutique tax credits, other subsidies, emergency fundings. If you put all that together and added it up, I think we'd come up with a really basic math principle behind the sensibility associated with more money in people's pockets. It's sort of a a strange one to push back so vehemently. It's almost as if you're okay with so many people being hungry. There's just simply no need of that. Modern-day Canada, four or five million Canadians weekly relying on a food bank just to keep some food in their stomach and their families. I mean, there's got to be a better way, right? All right, good show. Uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program. One last check-in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at vocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.